guest, we welcome you. We're thankful that you're here. Uh, we will have several of the scriptures on the screen, but if you want to be open your Bible, we're going to continue studying from 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, and invite you into that study in just a few moments. Uh, we're thankful to each of you that have been participating in the 12questions.net and getting the word out. Please help us over the next 24 hours, and well, even this whole month, but especially the next 24 hours to do that. Carson, do you have a latest figure? Are we at 200? Okay, so... So 400 questions overall, but 250 of those have come in just since this morning, uh, since just the number already that has gotten the word out. So if you forgot to go home and post that on Facebook or Instagram, uh, please do that because that is really, really an effective way uh, for us to get hundreds of questions. And uh, when you think about uh, to have 250 just already in just a few hours, really, uh, when before that it was only about 12 per day. So that gives you an idea of how effective uh, the social media can be for something like this. So please uh, jump in there this evening and, and help out in that and do continue to pray. We want God uh, to be sought through this. Uh, we want people to realize that there is a God who we can trust and we can believe in and we can bring Him uh, our life as well as our questions. You know, out of the mouths of babes, little Warren Bowersock ran up to me just a few minutes ago and he said, he put his hands out like this and I wasn't for sure what he meant. And, uh, you know, I didn't know. And then he said, mint, mint. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not the mint guy. I said, I don't, I don't, if I had a mint, I'd give you a mint. I, I'm not the mint guy. And he said, oh. And so I followed him into the restroom and, and, uh, and just as we stepped in the restroom, he turned back around and said, oh, I know you. You're the guy that talks for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's me. All right. But tonight, since we're going to honor our college graduates and congratulations to you guys, we're thankful for your accomplishments and we really do want to rejoice with you. And, uh, and so I will plan on not talking quite as long tonight as sometime and, and we'll still get out at a regular time even doing that after the services closes tonight and uh, just a lot of good things happening right here the, the vacancy is a reminder of the good things that's happening in camp this week do continue to pray uh, for camp and the good that can be done there why do you think it was so common for them to just take individuals to court and especially their own brothers and sisters now listen, well, I have no way of answering that for sure, but let me tell you something I read this past week that was just a little bit eye-opening. The first century court system in Corinth, we really don't have much history at all on that. But what is interesting is there's been some writing done on the first century court system in Athens, which is just a neighboring town there, neighboring city. And it's interesting if their system in Corinth was anything like Athens' system, it kind of makes sense maybe why this was such a problem for them in that day and time. As a matter of fact, there was an expression of speech that would say, every man in Athens is a lawyer. And what was meant by that was that their judicial system, that everybody was so active in it, that it was almost like a community activity. I don't know any of you, if any of you stooped to the level, uh, but you know, when I was an older, I was about to say a kid, an older kid, Sometime on Friday and Saturday nights, we'd go up to night court just to watch. It was kind of entertaining. And, and, you know, it might be that that to some degree was kind of how they viewed court. In other words, here is how it would lay out in, in Athens in that time period. 
If two individuals had a dispute, a private arbitrator would be granted to them. And if they could not settle the matter, then it would be brought to what they called the court of 40. And the court of 40 would appoint a public arbitrator, which interestingly usually was someone who was between the age of 60 and 61. They felt like in that day and time, that was an old age. No offense to any of us that are there getting close, okay? But that was, that was considered a pretty old age in that day and time in the first century. And so they felt like that that one year that you ought to be put to work for your community in that way. So a lot of the arbitrators were 60 years old. But if that couldn't handle it, it would go to a small court. And the small court would be heard by a jury, and get this, of 201 people. Now you talk about a hung jury. The good thing is they didn't all have to agree. It was decided on a majority vote. And then if it couldn't be handled in a small court, it would go to a large court. And the large court was anywhere from 1,000. And some of the larger cases, history says, would go up to six thousand jury members so you can imagine it was an event everybody in town would probably go to see what's happening in court today now how much of that was taking place in Corinth I don't know but we do know this the idea of taking individuals to court was pretty common maybe we could say that's a lot like America today but you know, if you were here this morning, the problem was that those that had been converted to Jesus Christ out of that culture were also very accustomed to taking their own brothers and sisters in Christ to court. And that's what in the first eight verses that he deals with, and we look this morning at the fact that the simple fact is spelled out in verse 1. Don't take your brothers and sisters to court ultimately is what is being taught in the first verse of 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. But then he gave the deeper reason and, and the deeper reason is the fact that when you are a member of the kingdom of God and, and if you'll notice there in, in verse one, he says, dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the... Now notice who you're going before. And, and as we read this, will you just for a moment to think of, of two categories. Dare you go before who? The unrighteous and not before who? The saints. Notice how he does that again in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you drop down in verse 5 and in verse 6, notice this. I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man. In other words, among the saints, there ought to be a wise man among you, but they're not finding that one. And so they, they look in verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Notice this category here is called the world. It's called unbelievers. It's called unrighteous. And he says, why would saints, why would brothers and sisters in Christ, those that have devoted their life to the Lord, why would they look outside the kingdom for instruction? And then, we already mentioned there in verse 5, he says, it's to your shame. And the shame is ultimately the embarrassment that it is to the Lord's kingdom. God gives us the answers. 
And we ought to have individuals among us that know how to take the wisdom of God and apply it to life. And we do. And so instead of shaming the church, we ought to place our esteem, and here's ultimately the principle, and this is all by review and we're about to move forward. It's really, it boils down to this. Who do you esteem? Who do you lift up? Do you lift up the wisdom of God and his people? Or do you lift up the wisdom of the world and the potential gain that you think you can get? That's what he's ultimately calling them on. And so we looked at that this morning. We saw verse 1, the teaching, but then the principle. But now I want you to notice, as we go to verse 7, he stays with the same topic, but he kind of shifts the principle to say, I'm still teaching verse 1, but let me tell you a different principle now that we're going to back up verse 1 with. So let's begin reading here and uh, verse 7. Now, therefore, remember therefore is always tying together what's just been said with what is about to be said. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. You see this principle? Same teaching, just entirely different principle here. And Paul here literally says to them, you've utterly failed. That may not seem like a big deal to you, but if you had an apostle of God looking at you, and think about this, saying to you, you have utterly failed. That would be a wake-up call, hopefully, to most of us. What is it that I've done that you would look at me and say, that's utter failure? And he would say, it is obvious, now I'm, I'm taking what he says and I'm putting in an application here. You know, we've just read what he says. So, but let me give it to you by application. By application, what he's saying is, you could have held up and esteemed the church, in other words, saved the church from embarrassment, by you yourself suffering defraud. But instead, you wanted to demand your rights. And you wanted to reach out there and get everything you could get. And so you lifted up yourself, but you shamed the church. So someone says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean to tell me that in order to lift up and esteem the church, you expect me to suffer loss? Well, let's look at it again. It's right there on the screen. Let's look at it again. Notice what he says after they've utterly failed in verse 7. There's an end of a sentence, and look at the next two questions. Why do you not rather accept wrong and why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Brethren, those are challenging questions when it comes down to the fact that you and I would be the one wronged. Oh, it's a great principle to look at when it's not affecting us. How much does the church mean to you? Oh, I would suffer great loss personally if I could just save embarrassment of the church. Do we believe that when the great loss is being suffered? In other words, notice what he says. Receive wrong. Any of you that have played football, you know what it is to be a receiver. The very idea is the ball is coming through the air and you are going to take it into your possession. 
That's the idea of a receiver. He says, I want you whenever the opportunity is for you to be wronged, but yet receiving that wrong would save embarrassment of the church. He says, I want you to receive the wrong. And he then says it in other words, but it's the same thing. He says, when you would say, oh, but this person is a brother in Christ and they're cheating me. He says, I want you to be cheated. Now, I do want you to note this. This is important. I believe we have a step one and step two process here in the way that it's written chronologically. In other words, what we studied this morning obviously came first. So what's the first step? When we feel like a brother or a sister is cheating us or taking advantage of us, the first step is... I'm not going to go to a court system out in the world. I'm going to find someone who is wise among us and perhaps they can settle this in such a way that I won't be defrauded, that I won't be cheated. Because listen, it's not good for the brother or sister to defraud us because now they have started down a wrong path. So how wonderful would it be if we could find someone wise among us that could save them from doing the wrong and us from being wrong. But see, now we've gone to a second step. It's almost as if Paul says, now when you try that, and yet the brother or sister is not willing to work with the one in the church that is wise, he says, be cheated. Suffer the wrong. I'd like to invite you, and you know this is hard for me to do, but I'm telling you, I'm going to do it, okay? I want to invite you through three passages and we don't have time to elaborate on them but I want you to evaluate you and I'll evaluate me and how could we ever have this attitude that says I am willing to be cheated if it will lift up the glory of the church. Well we'd have to have first a heart like our father. Turn, if you will, to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew, the fifth chapter. I want you to see where we're going. And Matthew 5 and verse 48 is where we're going to end. Matthew 5 and 48. We don't have slides for this. So if you have your Bible, take one out of the pew there. It's on page 853 in the pew Bible. And, and this is where we're going in this text. Look at the fifth chapter in verse 48. Therefore, in other words, he's saying, if you do everything I've just taught here in the Sermon on the Mount, the last paragraph, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, he's going to, we're about to read some things that Jesus gets to this point in the sermon. He teaches these things and we would throw up our hands and say, why would anybody do that? And he will say, the reason you do it is so that you can be like your father. Now keep in mind, back to the two categories here, be like the saints, people that are sanctified, set apart into the kingdom, or you can be like the world. If you want to be like the world, what we're about to read will make no sense. If you want to be like the father, it's going to be very different from the world. It's going to be set apart from the world. I, I want to start with one verse and then we're going to back up, but just because it's so appropriate. Look at verse 40. Think about what we just left in 1 Corinthians 6, and now let's go to Matthew 5, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Who would do that? Well, someone that wants to be like their Heavenly Father, not like the world. Someone that wants to save embarrassment of the church where a brother and a sister is about to take advantage of them and it can't be settled, and you say, well, what, what do I do? Don't embarrass the church. By the way, if you were here last Sunday, it's the same principle in a sense. 
as what we studied last week in 1 Corinthians 5, that we have a great responsibility to a cause that's greater than any of us individually. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. What about when one member brings in sin and refuses to repent of it? Do we just let it infester the whole church? No. He says... The whole church is more important than that one individual. You set them apart. You love them. You hope that they come back. But that's just how important the church is. Well, here's kind of just the opposite. You're the one, and you haven't done anything wrong, perhaps, and yet somebody's taking advantage of you. What are you going to do? He says, whatever you do, don't react to it in such a way that it shames the church. And so now Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. So someone wants to take something that doesn't even belong to them, what should I do? Give them a little bit more than what they're asking for. Here's the surrounding verses. Uh, look at verse 39. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. We just read 40. Look at 41. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to him who asked you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. That would make us like our father. Because after all, it all belongs to him anyway. If we're saints. If we're saints, our life belongs to him. That's why we would give the other cheek. It's the Lord's cheek anyway. We've given him our body. We've given him our heart, our soul, our mind, and our possessions. And so the Lord says, I want you to use the possessions that would glorify me. And then he even talks about how to deal with enemies in, in 43 challenging verses here. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And here's the reason why, again, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Turn with me, if you will, and let's look at another reason why we would be different. Colossians, the third chapter, we studied this earlier this year when we were looking at kingdom living out of a study through Colossians. So we see from Matthew that we would do things very different from the world because we want to be like the Father. And so what we're seeing here is it goes completely against that attitude where it's my right and I'm going to demand that I stand up and I get my way and, and I protect my life and my things. And it's just interesting that all that it's not at all what the Lord is calling us to be. The Lord is saying, I want you to look. And I want you to see what I'm like. And make sure that you react to things based on the way I am. Because it's real easy instead to have a carnal nature and react to things based upon how the world is. Again, that's why we see the word saint several times in 1 Corinthians 6. I have no doubt in my mind. He could have called them many things. Why did he call them saint? Because they have been set apart from the world, but yet they were going back to the world to get wisdom in their decision-making in courts. And he's saying, saints means you've been set apart. Don't go back to what you left. All right, so what about forgiveness? How can we deal with this? Look, if you will, in Colossians 3rd chapter and verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy, that's also the same word as saint or sanctified, Elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Now notice especially this. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, take them to court. Doesn't say that, does it? If anyone has a complaint against another, 
even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So back in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I'm asking you to do these things that you'd never do in the world because I'm asking you to be like your father. And now Paul writes Colossians and he says, look, you're going to have complaints against each other. Becoming a Christian, as we talked about this morning and we've been talking about for a few weeks, becoming a Christian doesn't mean your problems are washed away. Becoming a Christian teaches us how to deal with problems. And he says, so what's going to happen is you're going to become a Christian and you're going to have complaints against each other. And instead of demanding, I'm going to put that brother in his place. And then we start reasoning. Well, if I don't, he's just going to keep doing it to other people. And God doesn't expect me to be a rug and be walked on. I'm going to put him in his place. He says, I'd rather you be more like your elder brother. You got to complain against your brother? Instead of taking him to court, instead of making him pay what he ought to pay for his sins, how about you do like Jesus? Forgive him. What a challenge. And the challenge, as you know, it's a challenge because there's nothing within our fleshly nature that would long to do that. Only if we lived as sanctified people. In our closing passage, Romans the 12th chapter. Romans the 12th chapter. Oh, there's so much, you know. We could literally just read this, this whole chapter. But let's just scan a few of the latter verses here. He expects us in 10 to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor. Why do you think, though he says, giving preference to one another? It's so easy to put ourselves above others. He says, don't do that. Now, skip down and notice what he says in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Brethren, why does the Lord speak so oftentimes about our willingness to suffer? I need to stop and think about that. And I don't mean just right now at this moment. I'm talking about when you're going to work tomorrow, when you're laying down tonight and you're about to say your prayers. Stop and ask yourself, do I grasp the idea that to be a saint is saying, Lord, I am willing to suffer to make sure you and your ways are exalted. So if me forgiving someone means I just take and receive the wrong, I'll be cheated. I'll receive the wrong. You know it's going to cost you a lot of money. Which do you want? You want the blessings of God? Or do you want the money you can get from a court system? Ultimately, that's what it boils down to. I hope all of us here are wise enough to know that there is no victory in a courtroom that is greater than to being able to say, I am a faithful child of God. I walk with Him. I am sanctified. I used to walk like that. I don't walk like that anymore. I value this life with the King. His wisdom what we studied this morning, not the world's wisdom, and tonight, the church, not me, the church. If I have to suffer for the church to receive glory, I'll suffer for the church to receive glory. Jesus did. That's literally how the church was established, was that Jesus suffered. So let, let's read these, and then we close. Verse 17, Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have
have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. See, we don't have to go and take a brother to court and fight. That's just not the nature of a Christian. But rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That last verse could also be the summary after 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. That could be the close of that. Brothers, you're taking your brothers to court. Don't be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. Tonight, I hope we realize that the world is full of problems, but thank God He gives us solutions. But realize as we began this morning, we walk by faith and not by sight. And there's never going to be a time that we look at the things that we've just studied the last few minutes and we're going to look at them with our eyes and we're going to say, oh, I love to do this. I don't think there'll ever be in our time in our life we'll do that. But we are called upon regularly to look at those times and say, right now, I'm making a decision to live by faith. And in that, I'll walk with the Lord. There's not anybody here perfect. But let's all leave here tonight having been redeemed, having been sanctified, our life in alignment with the King. That's what kingdom living is all about. If you've never been baptized into Christ as a believer, are you willing to repent of sins and confess before men? We would love to see you immersed into Christ to begin that life where He is King of your life. Maybe you've begun that journey and along the way, you've been tempted to value other things more. Maybe you're ready to come back tonight and devote all of yourself, all that you are, all that you have to the Lord. If we can help you in any